Well, if you have your Bible, go ahead and grab it and turn with me to Romans chapter 16. Romans 16, verses 1 to 16. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under a chair or in a pew back in front of you. And Romans is about three quarters of the way through your Bible. It's after Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and Romans. And we are going to be finishing our 18-month series next Sunday, Lord willing. And so this morning, we get to continue on in that series. If you are new or newer, uh, I just want to introduce myself. Uh, my name is Derek Van Ruler, and I'm one of the leaders here at Sunbury City Church. It's a joy each week to just unpack God's Word and point us back to the hope that God has of us uh, and for us in His Word. And we've been going through the book of Romans because we want to get a sense of who God is. In the world in which we live, we want to be able to get a sense of the truth and the reality of who God is. Because the more we know God, the more we can better understand ourselves and the more we can withstand temptation and we can withstand persecution in this world. It's not about us trying to find uh, entertainment or us trying to find some sort of satisfaction, but rather being grounded into the word of God. And we need to be a people who are grounded in God's word. And so we've been looking at this book to really get a sense of who the Lord is. Now, as we start today, I saw a commercial that I thought was incredibly fitting for what Paul's going to show us this morning. The commercial was about Damian Lillard. If you don't know, Damian Lillard is a point guard for the Portland Trailblazers, uh, a very good point guard in the NBA. And this commercial, you see him practicing in a gym with the lights kind of dim or, or even out. And as he's practicing, the narrator just simply says this. If Damian Lillard would have accepted his spot at the end of the bench, he would not have been at the rec center before it opened. If he listened to those who overlooked him, he would have never heard his name called as a first-round pick. And if he let six all-star selections go to his head, he would never have the heart to give back to the streets that shaped him. Now, in a commercial like that, what are they trying to communicate? They're trying to communicate the reality that his determination, through his determination, he wanted to be a He wanted to prove that he was a man you should not overlook. You see, all throughout his life, he felt uh, perhaps he wasn't special or he had no role to play. And instead of just being on the team, he wanted to actually be part of something great. He wanted to be at the center of what was happening. He wasn't content just being in the huddle. He wanted to be the guy that the play was designed around. And in a short commercial like that, we realize that we all desire to be something, part of something greater, don't we? And the reality of this morning, what we're going to see is that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you actually are invited in to something far greater, greater than an NBA championship, greater than work, greater than family. We are invited in to the greatest thing this world has to offer And that is the work of God through our lives and expanding his kingdom across the world. And my hope this morning, my hope this morning is that no matter how you look at yourself, no matter how you view yourself, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you will realize that you have a part to play in the kingdom of God. 
And to show us that, Paul's going to just simply hit home this idea this morning, that God's kingdom expansion employs gospel-exalting workers. That if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, he is calling you, inviting you into the work that he's doing across the globe, and that work is to exalt the kingdom of God. And so with that, let's go ahead and read our passage this morning. As we do, would you stand with me as we read God's word this morning in Romans 16, and we'll start in verse 1 and go all the way down to verse 16. Romans 16, starting in verse 1, Paul writes, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sincrea, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risk their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epinatus, who is the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who's worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They're well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampelatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stockies. Greet Apuleius who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphenea and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asencritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobos, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nurus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. This is the word of the Lord. And all God's people said, praise be to God. You may be seated. So this morning, as we are walking through this passage, you might be thinking, why such a list? What is the point of this kind of list? And you might be wondering, why did we read that passage in the book of Ruth from chapter 4, verses 7 to 12? And the point is this, that God uses the most unexpected characters in the kingdom of God. You know, every week we read another passage before the pastoral prayer, and the point is to show you how all of Scripture ties together. And so we try to find a passage that, that amplifies the, the passage that we're looking at in the Bible together. And what we read in that passage is all of these people, and in particular, the marriage between Ruth, who is a Moabite woman, to Boaz, an Israelite person. And you might think, well, what? What's the point of that? Well, if you continue reading on through your Bible, you'll realize that because of that marriage, God used 
their great-great-grandchild, David, to become one of the greatest kings Israel had ever known. And it was actually through that line that Jesus Christ came as the Savior of the world. So just some random woman God grabs and brings into the line of Jesus Christ. This morning, as we look at this list, it, it can be daunting to try to read them. Trust me, <laughs> it can be daunting to try to read them. But it can also feel like, what's the point? Like, let, let's move on. The point is that no matter what background you and I come from, no matter how you think about yourself, the point is that God uses all sorts of people. And we've seen that all throughout the letter to the church at Rome, haven't we? What we've seen is that Paul believes that the gospel is the power of God. As he says in chapter 1, verses 16 to 17, that's the power of God to all who would believe, whether you're Jewish, meaning that you are religious and grew up knowing and believing in God, or you're a Gentile, grew up never going to church, worshiping the galaxies or whatever else you could think of, no matter which side of the aisle you come from, The gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. And all throughout the letter to the church at Rome, Paul is hammering this point that if you come to faith in Jesus Christ, there's no condemnation for you. That it's wiped away. Anything that would separate you from Jesus is now gone. And we can now have a hope in Jesus Christ. So much so, it leads Paul, at the age of 60, to want to move across the empire to Spain and start a brand new ministry where he's starting churches in Spain. Just imagine that. The kind of life transformation that we see. And as Paul's going to show us all of these different people, what I want us to see is that gospel work employs different kinds of people. And in fact, we're going to see four traits of these kinds of people this morning. And my hope is that you're encouraged by that to see that you, too, play a role in the kingdom of God. So let's look at these four traits. The first trait is that, God, uh, that kingdom exalting workers are different. Kingdom exalting workers are different. So if you are following sports at all, right now there have been, over the last week or two, a bunch of free agent signings in baseball. All these guys are getting tens of millions of dollars. Uh, what you don't read is about the guy who barely made the AAA team who wants to now go to the majors and he's getting a contract. You don't read about that, right? We only read about the top players getting top money. And so if you're devising and and putting together your team, you're thinking about all the characteristics that you would want on your team and you're starting to select people who have those characteristics and yet all throughout the Bible, that's not the way God selects players on his team. Just look at the disciples. They're made up of fishermen. The reason why you were a fisherman is because you flunked out of school and you went back to your family line of business. Made up of a tax collector who was hired by the enemy to suppress you, to get more money from you to further the enemy's work. We see a zealot, someone who on the flip of a coin wants to fight the Romans. And all these people that God brings in, we even see Jesus in Luke chapter 7. We 
read of a woman of the city, a prostitute, who comes and and begins to weep at his feet and begins to use her hair to wash his feet. And the religious leaders are saying, do you know who's here? He's like, yeah, I do. And because she came in love, because she came in faith, she's forgiven. And we, we later read that that's Mary Magdalene who served Christ regularly throughout his ministry. And that's the kind of person that Christ employs in his kingdom work. And we see it again in this list. Look with me at verse 1. We're going to have to jump around to see some of these things, but look with me at verse 1. Paul just starts. He says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe. Now, we, we can't read over that too quickly. He calls her his sister. She is family in Christ. But what we also have to realize is that in this day and age, women were seen as second-class citizens, so much so that their testimony would not be allowed in the court of law. And now Paul is elevating Phoebe to say, I commend her to you as a church. Outside of Jesus Christ and outside of the church, in the first century, no one saw women as commendable as Christians did. Church, we are the people who value women. We are the people who have declared that women have worth and have value when the world has only looked down upon women and have seen women as less valuable or have seen women as untrustworthy. And yet, if we're not careful, I think even in the church, we've begun to look down upon women. Maybe seeing their viewpoint as less than a man's viewpoint. Is that how you view women? Because that's not how the church of God has ever viewed women. Husbands, is that how you view your wife? That she's just there to be your servant? Because that's not how the Bible has called us to view our wives. We see that. Paul commends this sister in the faith. Sure, we have different roles for women in the church, but that doesn't mean that we wield our authority over them as if we are so, something better. Men, that, that doesn't mean that we walk around like we have all the answers, but rather we seek answers from our wives or from our friends, and we seek to listen to them. We should value the gifts of women within the church, because notice what Paul did here. What's the first name that he speaks of? Phoebe. Not only does he honor her, not only does he commend her, but he puts her first. Wow. Think about the ways in which women, you should feel valued in the church. And then notice what he calls her. Verse 1 again, he calls her a servant of the church at Sincrea. If you're using an English Standard Version Bible or, or maybe another version would have it too, there's a little letter or a little number right after the word servant. If you drop to the bottom of your page, you'll read that it says deaconess. This is an actual role within the church. If you were to flip over to 1 Timothy chapter 3, you'll read about this role. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, we see the qualifications of deacons who are given the job to serve the church. 
in, in various areas under the leadership of the elders who pray and preach and guide the church spiritually. And we see this qualification of a deacon in verse 8 to 13. But right in the middle there, you'll read verse 11 where it says, Their wives likewise must be dignified. And the reality is, if you were to study that, you would realize that, that the wording is wrong. Not that your Bible's wrong, but that that wording can be translated either wife or woman. And most of your Bibles note that. We take that to believe that it's women not a wife. And so the point of what I'm trying to communicate is that women are so valued and we value women so well that they can even serve as a deacon within the church because Paul shows Phoebe serving this church at Sincrea as a deacon. But he doesn't stop there. Look at verse 3. He talks about Prisca and Aquila. Well, who are these people? These are the people that we read about in Acts 18.26. Where they take Apollos, he's a man who is teaching about God, and they realize that he is not teaching about the baptism of Jesus because he doesn't know about it. And so they take him aside, and they begin to say, hey, here's the fuller revelation of Jesus Christ. And notice, he calls them fellow workers. He says that you matter. Even there, Prisca, uh, another woman, he calls, him, calls her a fellow worker. And look at verse 5. He mentions Epinatus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Epinatus would have been Greek or Gentile. If you've read the book of Romans or if you've been here the last couple of weeks, you'll realize the, the stark reality that the Jewish people look down upon the Gentiles. And now Paul is elevating this Gentile person to say that even he can come to faith in Jesus and even he is worthy. He was actually the first convert in all of Asia, which is present-day Turkey. And he honors this man. It would have been scandalous for them to read about that. If you're a Jew. And what Paul is saying is that the gospel tears down the wall between the Jew and the Gentile so much that this man is able to come to faith in Christ. And look at verse 6. He speaks about Mary, another woman who's worked hard for them. And in verse 12, he speaks about Tryphenea and Tryphosa and Persis. More women. So what's the point here? The point is, is that no matter your background, no matter what you come in with, you can come to faith in Jesus Christ and you can be useful in the kingdom of God. That if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ and you think, man, who I am or what I've done would prevent me from being useful in the kingdom of God or even coming to faith in Christ, I want to proclaim to you that all of that doesn't matter. That if you just look to Jesus Christ, you too can come to faith in Christ. Church, we should be the most diverse place on the planet. Not because we're actively seeking diversity but because we want all people to know about Jesus. And so if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, I just want you to come and trust and believe in Jesus, that his death on the cross for your sin conquers it all, and his resurrection gives you brand new life in him. So it should change us 
and should help us to value people. But then we see a second, uh, second characteristic or trait, and that's kingdom-exalting workers are diligent. They work hard for the sake of the kingdom. They love the gospel, and they want people to come to faith in Christ. Look at verse 3 again. Paul mentions Prisca and Aquila, and notice uh, what he says about them. He says that they're his fellow workers in Christ Jesus, and they risk their necks for his life, to whom not only he, Paul, gives thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Paul's valuing the work of Priscilla and Aquila. Then jump down to verse 6 again. Notice how he describes Mary. He said that she worked hard for them. It wasn't this half-hearted, I'll kind of give the church whatever is left over. It's a focus on Jesus Christ that caused her to work hard and to give her best for the sake of the gospel. It reminds us of what Paul said in Colossians 3. If you look at Colossians 3.23, Paul says that we are to work mightily as if working for the Lord and not for man. What Paul's saying is that the way in which we work both in the church and outside the church is not to gain the glory and honor from man, but rather to give glory and honor to God. Is that the way you work? When you come and volunteer here, when you try to be a good neighbor, when you try to love your family, when you go to work, are you doing it for their applause and their praise, or are you doing it so that the Lord might be glorified? And then notice what he says in verse 7. He talks about Andronicus and Junia, and he calls them his kinsmen. They're, they must be Jewish as well. And he calls them fellow prisoners. And notice what's true about their ministry. They're well known to the apostles and they were in Christ before me. So why would these people be well known? What, are, what do you typically know? The extreme good and the extreme bad, right? It's the middle that gets left out. I think I shared this example a few weeks ago. I don't tell you about the fact that I go to CVS and I got a toothbrush. It's not that newsworthy, right? Now, if the place was robbed, I'd be telling you that story. Or if they gave me like $1,000 of extra bucks, I'd be telling you that story. That receipt's finally worth it, right? And so they must have done such good work that the apostles know it, that people are talking about it. They saw the church as the church of God, that they wanted to serve the church of God. They weren't serving for the sake of others, but they were serving for the sake of God and His glory. Church, this church is not about me. It's not about the elders. It's about God. And so when we come in, we don't serve the pastors or the elders, but we serve God. Is that your heart? And we see verse 9. He talks about Urbanus, his fellow worker in Christ, and Stachys. Again, He's talking about people who, who are beloved. They're, they're not on the sidelines, but rather they want to join the work of God. He calls them fellow workers, even though he is not working alongside, shoulder to shoulder with them. The work that they're doing in another city is actually fellow work. 
you realize that the work you do here is not just the work that is beneficial here, but it's beneficial to the kingdom of God across the world. I I was talking with somebody here uh, the other night, and she had the opportunity to worship with a church in another state that's part of the Pillar Network. And it was just fun for her to just meet other brothers and sisters who are like-minded, who understand the way we preach and the way we think and, and love God's word. And it was just an encouragement to her soul. Church, that's what happens when we join in the work of God. We are partnering with brothers and sisters across the country and across the world. And my hope is someday when we get to heaven, we'll get to rejoice with them and meet them and get to spend eternity with them. And look at verse 12. He says, greet Persis, another person who is working hard in the Lord. Well, what are we seeing here? We're seeing a vision of gospel work. That these people saw the good news of Christ and they saw that it was worthy of them giving excellent work. You know, not that phrase, you know, good enough for government work. You know, how often it is, you know, that's kind of the, the way that we allow ourselves to not do 100% excellent work. Yeah, it's good enough for government work. That's not what they're saying. They see the gospel as worthy of excellent work. And this is the very thing that we see in the example of Christ, right? He's one who diligently obeyed the Father in all that he had. He didn't hold back in any way, but rather sacrificed his comfort. And he entered into humanity, and he diligently obeyed the Father in all that the Father had for him. I couldn't imagine Jesus walking by somebody and being like, well, the government says I get a 15-minute break, so I'm not going to heal you right now because, you know, I do government work, so I'm taking a break, right? He diligently obeyed the Father. He loved the Father. He loved the Father's work, and that should propel us forward as well. And how? Well, it starts with our own relationship with God. Is your relationship with God something that is only reserved for Sundays or maybe one other day in the week that you get, gather with other Christians? Or is it something that encompasses your entire life? If you were to look at your life, is your life focused on the gospel? Or is it focused on everything else and the gospel is just an addition? It sounds like for these people, the gospel was at the center of their life. And so church, we got to be a people who slow down. We've got to be a people who focus our hearts and our minds on Christ. Husbands, we've got to be men who love our wives to the point that we ask how they're doing in the Lord. And if they need a break to be able to spend time with the Lord, we step in and give them that break. Wives. We need wives who love us and care about our walk with the Lord to the point that we can be given a break to spend time with Jesus. Singles, you need a friend to walk alongside you, to engage your heart that can ask you regularly, how is your love for Jesus Christ? Do you have that? Parents, we need to be a people who are pursuing our kids and and helping them to see that that Jesus is worthy of our lives and training them in this way. 
showing them why we spend our time and why we spend our money the way we do. Why we devote our lives to following Jesus Christ. And you might wonder, I I don't even know how to do that. Have you prayed and asked the Lord to show you? The first step that to be able to parent and show our kids the hope of Jesus Christ is just to pray that the Lord would give you eyes to see and the ability to lead. And then Paul shows us the third characteristic, and that is kingdom-exalting workers are self-denying. They're different than what we expect. They're diligent. They work hard for the sake of the gospel, and they're self-denying. They're willing to give up comfort. They're willing to give up what they desire and sacrifice for the sake of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 1 and 2. Paul talks about Phoebe again. And in verse 2, he describes Phoebe. He wants them to welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints. Why? Well, and to help her whatever she may need from you. Why? Because she's been a patron of many and of myself as well. What's Paul saying? He's saying she has seen the gospel as so worthy that she takes her money and she leverages it for the sake of the gospel. She provides for the needs of the saints, for the needs of the church. Last week we saw how there's a reality that to just have church, it costs money. The Bibles in your hands, the lights and the heats and the sound, all of that costs money. And you get a picture that Phoebe recognized that and she sacrificed for the sake of the gospel. Is that true of you? Are you someone who is looking intently at your budget, ensuring that you're on a budget and looking at it and saying, God, how can I give to further the kingdom of God? So I want to encourage you, if you're not, that that we did some classes a few weeks back on finances and and those uh, audio recordings are up on our podcast platform that you can listen to. But then notice the sacrifice in verse 3 and 4 between Priscilla and Aquila. Notice what they do in verse 4. Paul says that they risked their necks for his life. Well, what's he talking about here? Commentators think that he's talking about what happened in Acts 19. And in Acts 19, we read about uh, the city of Ephesus. People were coming to faith in Christ, and silversmiths and blacksmiths hated that because now people were not going to them asking them to build idols, but rather were worshiping God. And you don't play with someone's money, right? You don't take away their money or their business. And so they got mad, and they caused a riot in the city. And in that moment, a group of people protect Paul and get him to safety. And they believe that Priscilla and Aquila were a part of that group, protecting Paul, risking their own lives for the sake of Paul. We see their sacrifice. And the only way that they would do that is if the Holy Spirit came and changed their life and gave them a greater vision for life, where they willingly offer to give up this life for the sake of eternity. Church, the only way that happens is if we heed the words of Paul in Philippians chapter 3. Paul tells us something similar in Philippians 3 verse 8. Listen to what he says. He says, indeed, 
I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, as trash, in order that I might gain Christ. Do you see that? Do you see Jesus as so lovely that everything else is just trash in comparison to Jesus? They did, to the point that they were willing to risk their own lives. Might we be a people who are willing to risk our lives for the sake of the gospel, willing to risk people thinking that we're dumb or that, we don't, uh, that we're not accepting or, or whatever the culture might think of us. May we risk that for the sake of telling others about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And look at verse 7. We see Andronicus and Junia. Notice what they do. They are fellow prisoners. Apparently, they loved the gospel so much it landed them in jail. I was uh, a couple weeks back, I was listening to a podcast about these two pastors who are Afghan pastors. And they, uh, by God's grace, they were able to get out of Afghanistan right before the Taliban uh, took over and the United States pulled out the last plane. They were on that last plane. And they said the Taliban was coming for them because years ago they decided to declare that their religion was Christianity. And in that country, the Taliban's hate Christianity. And so if they would have stayed, they would have been dead. And yet, as they were trying to decide, are we going to declare that we're Christians or not, they stated that they had to count the cost for following Christ. And they willingly counted the cost and followed Christ. Have you counted the cost? In fact, Jesus calls us to something similar. In Matthew 16, Jesus asked the disciples, who do the people say I am? And they're like, oh, John the Baptist, oh, this other prophet Elijah. And he says, who do you say I am? And they said, well, you're the Messiah. You're the one that we've been looking for. You're the one that, to come to save us. And yet their salvation was from the Romans and not from sin. And Jesus had to reorient their minds. And he said, okay, you're right. I am the Savior. But if, you're, if you want to come after me, you have to deny yourself. You have to take up your cross, and then you're worthy of following me. What's he saying? He's saying you've got to deny this world, be willing to go to the death, and then you can come follow me. That's what we see in the example of Andronicus and Junia, their willingness to deny. And how do we get there? Church, we get there simply by focusing on the sacrifice and the self denial of Jesus Christ. So often we believe in the cross of Christ. We believe that, he, that Jesus came, he lived perfect, he died, he rose from the dead, and then we're ready to move on. The reality is the only way that we can deny ourselves and sacrifice for the sake of Christ is if we stare at the cross and Christ's sacrifice for us. We never move beyond the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Lastly, kingdom workers are devoted. They push all of their chips in to be about Jesus. 
Look at verse 2. Again, he's talk, Paul's talking about Phoebe. He's saying that Phoebe is giving, essentially he's giving of her money. She's a, been a patron of many and even of Paul. This isn't from someone who's devoted to this life. If you're devoted to this life, you're never going to give money for the sake of the gospel. Clearly, Phoebe was devoted to eternal life, and so she gave financially and gave freely. In verse 3 and 4, again, Paul points out Prisca and Aquila and the fact that they've risked their lives. And as we just saw in verse 7, Andronicus and Junia being in prison, they're so devoted to the gospel that they are willing to be arrested. Verses 8 and 9, we see a number of other people. In verse 11, we see not just the man, narcissist, but we also see his whole family. He leads his whole family to be about Jesus Christ. And we see in verse 13, Rufus. I'm so glad that we don't have any of these names today, right? We see Rufus, right? Chosen the Lord. Also his mother. She's a mother to Paul. And in verses 14 and 15, we see all sorts of names that Paul just calls as saints, people who are doing the work of God. What does this tell us, church? It tells us that we need to realize that all the work that we do must be done in the Lord. That the foundation of the work that we do here, the work we do in our community, the work that we do at our job must be grounded upon the praise of Jesus Christ. And it must be Christ working in and through us where Christ is worthy of our entire lives. You see, they saw the gospel and they gave themselves to the work of the Lord because they were centered on Jesus Christ. Church, may we be a people like this who are so centered on Jesus Christ that we're willing to give up everything. You know, the author of Hebrews tells us something similar. We read in Hebrews chapter 12. If you know the book of Hebrews at all, you know Hebrews 11 is this chapter full of people of faith. And in the middle, or at the end of that, Hebrews chapter 12 Verse 1 simply begins, and, and I believe that we could uh, take that out and kind of just put it here at the end of verse 16 in Romans as well. And we read, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder of and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Church, this cloud of witnesses that we've seen in Romans 16, may that lead us to lay aside anything that hinders us, whether it be sin or whether it be the love and the desires of the world, may we lay aside anything that clings so closely and may we run with endurance for the sake of Jesus Christ. May we encourage each other to run with endurance for the sake of the gospel. That as we sing, we sing loudly 
to remind each other there's no other hope that is greater than the hope of Jesus Christ. That as we talk after church, we stay and we fellowship and we go to lunch and we go to dinner so we would share the work of God in our lives. Do you do that? I want to encourage you to get together with one another. Share what God is doing in your life. And begin to challenge each other to restructure our lives around Jesus Christ. Because the kingdom of God is amazing. We're not the first people to see that. We have names of people who we have no idea other than Romans 16. Who saw the kingdom of God as something greater. Church, you're being invited into Something more than the World Cup. Something greater than baseball or basketball or whatever sport. Or something greater than music. Something greater than your job. Something greater than your family. You're being invited in to partake and be used by God in the kingdom of God to see it expand across the world. Will you join him in that work? I want to encourage you today. This afternoon, I mean, look, it's a terrible day, isn't it? It's cold, it's raining, there's not much you're doing. Take time and pray and ask the Lord how you might join the work that he is already doing. Because my hope for us is that we might not be a people who just consume, but rather or that we're a, not just a people who are okay being on the bench. But rather, we might be a people who want to get into the game and expand the kingdom of God across the world. I don't know of any other way to use and to spend your life than for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we come to passages like this, and I come to study these passages and think, why all the names? <laughs> Can't we just skip and go to the next section? And yet, in your divine plan, you want us to learn from these men and women and their examples. And so, Father, I pray that you would take the words uh, from Scripture and point them deep into our hearts. Challenge us. Father, we know that we are a selfish people who long for doing ministry and life our way rather than yours. We confess that. How often we want our glory rather than the glory of Jesus Christ. And how often we get sidetracked from your word and rather just get caught up into our desires. Father, we confess. And we plead that you would change us. That you give us a different heart. That you would make us people that no matter what skills we think we have or don't have, that you would just help us to see that we have a place and a role in the kingdom of God and that we would use that role for your glory. Father, we pray in your son's precious name. Amen.